everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Lou Pellegrino, as always, is my producer. Got uh, two really great parts of this podcast, I think. First up is a 71-minute conversation with Vern Lundquist, the legendary sports broadcaster, and uh, great to catch up with him after he did the Masters. Tells a lot of stories on this podcast, including uh, the, uh, the greatest story of all, how he went from being at a Dallas discotheque to the next week to meeting his wife, who was on a blind date with somebody else. I think you will enjoy that, as well as other Vern Lundquist stories. John Oran talks about all the different NFL schedules that all the different NFL networks got, as well as uh, where Get Up is, ESPN's morning show at the moment. And Neil Best covering all the craziness that has gone down with Mike Francesa, the New York-based sports talk host. So Vern Lundquist, John Orand, and Neil Best coming up on the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. All right, and as I said at the top, we bring on Vern Lundquist, one of my favorite people in the sports media. Um, his career notes that I mentioned as I introed him are remarkable. And on a personal note, Vern Lundquist was my second guest on the old Sports Illustrated Media Podcast after Adam Schefter and Rachel Nichols. And Vern, I don't know if you know this, but I'm happy to tell you now that we taped that podcast from a uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit closet when I talked to you. <laughs> so it was literally bikinis and, uh, and swimsuits all over the place as I was, as I was taping my, or that podcast with you. Uh, welcome to the, or welcome back to the Sports uh, Media Podcast with Richard Deitch, Vern. It's great to have you here. Well, Richard, it's great to speak with you again, and I'm uh, I'm honored that I get to repeat uh, once <laughs> once every three years. <laughs> yeah, but uh, <laughs> I've missed try I've missed chatting with you, and I'm, I know you're doing well in your new responsibilities, and uh, I want you to do nothing but be successful. That's very nice of you to say, Vern. And the, I will say the studio now is much spacious, and there's no clothing or apparel all around here, so we're in good. Uh, Good standing, at least for this. Conversation. Well, I was, uh, you know, I, now that I know in retrospect the circumstances in which you recorded that, <laughs> uh, my admiration for you grows even higher because uh, you probably were quite distracted. Yeah, just closet, Vern. No, no actual. Oh, wi- wi- oh, yeah, okay. no women around, um, okay. except for my producer, Bette Marston, uh, at the time. Um, so, Vern, one of the things I want to start with is that you, um, you, you are just recently back from calling the Masters, and you also have another assignment, I think, coming up, uh, the PGA Championship. The Masters was your first assignment in many months, and uh, for those who don't know, Vern had back surgery, so he's in the process of rehabbing that. What was that like for you, Vern? What was it like to be away from calling a broadcast for a long time? And then the first one you come back is obviously one of the most iconic uh, sporting events in the calendar. Well, it was thrilling for me, Rich. Uh, uh, I, the last event I had worked for CBS prior to the, uh, the Masters at the beginning of April uh, was uh, in Madison Square Garden. Uh, Jim Spinarco and I had the regional final for the East in, in New York. Uh, ironically, I think, uh, the two finalists uh, for the berth to go to the final four were South Carolina and Florida. Hmm. And with a bit of an inside chuckle, I came on the air and I said, I never thought I'd say this again in my life, but welcome to the SEC on CBS. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it was heartfelt. Uh, I thought the odds of, of having those two teams from the SEC 
uh, in the final uh, was was really meaningful to me and to them, obviously. And South Carolina won it. Well, that was uh, I didn't know at the time that that was going to be the uh, the last basketball game I did. Uh, but uh, Sean McManus, my boss, and I chatted about it, and he knew the back surgery was coming up in early November of this fall. So it just seemed like the right way to step back. Uh, I'd done the tournament for 34 straight years, much, very much like my string at Augusta. But uh, I will share with you that that first day, whether it's a Thursday or a Friday, when you're asked to do four telecasts, uh, it's really a challenge. So uh, we agreed that I would drop basketball. So, And I'll get to the Augusta question in just a second, but I love the fact that I'm still employed by CBS. And uh, we, we reached a, a two-year deal uh, for me to do two events a year. And I told Sean with tongues firmly in cheek, uh, I don't care what you pay me as long as, long as it covers my minimum uh, for my insurance. <laughs> right. So and he agreed. And uh, so now to, to Augusta, I really, uh, was filled with anticipation and, uh, to, that's the longest I've ever gone without being involved in a broadcast. And, uh, so I've, and, and my wife went with me for only the fourth time in 34 years. And, and she had a great time. Uh, CBS treats its clients and the wives of broadcasters very well. Uh, they have a hospitality uh, suite um, uh, to the right side of the first fairway. And uh, we had a we had a friend <clears throat> who was qualified to play in the Masters for his first year. And he is a son. His, his name is Patton Kazire. And his, he, his dad, Max, played... Uh, baseball at Alabama. Uh, his stepmother, Elaine, graduated from Alabama. Her two uh, children, son and daughter, graduated from Alabama. And uh, Patton just kind of said, in your face, and he went to Auburn. <laughs> uh, but this was his first Masters. He's, I just checked it again uh, on Sunday on our CBS telecast of the Texas Open. He is still number two on the uh, FedEx point list. Uh, and uh, that, that just serves him in such great stead. He's won two golf tournaments this year. So anyway, uh, we would meet Max and Elaine and, uh, I'd have to go to work, but Nancy, uh, walked to the first three holes, each of the first two rounds with the family. And, uh, then she peeled off and said, okay, that, <laughs> That's enough walking for me. I'm going to head to the hospitality suite. Hmm. But she really had a great time, and I did too. It uh, it was kind of like a reunion, you know, to be back uh, with all my colleagues and, and especially, Richard, the technical crew. Because these, I would say, a half to three quarters of our SEC technicians uh, were present uh, in their various roles at Augusta. So there were a lot of hugs and a, a ton of how you doing, I'm doing fine, that kind of thing. And then the golf itself was pretty thrilling. Yeah, and you got uh, to call, uh, you had a, I think Spieth had a big moment on 16, right? He did. Yeah. Uh, he, about a 35-foot putt, and uh, he held it for birdie and was momentarily 
uh, tied for the lead at 14 under. Now, he had the misfortune of hitting uh, a tree off the tee at 18, took a bogey there. But Patrick Reed played uh, played extremely well. Yeah. And uh, he took the lead. And um, so he's he's this year's champion. And Jordan, I was... I know the family quite well, and uh, because of my years in Dallas at, at uh, WFAA, and uh, Jordan went to high school with uh, Doak Walker's grandson. Wow! Uh, one of the tidbits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I'm, you're not allowed to root, and I really don't. But subconsciously, well, not even subconsciously. In my heart of hearts, I was uh, because he played such a brilliant final round. If, if pressed to the wall, I will admit that I was hoping that Jordan won it. But uh, all all hats off to Patrick Reed. Boy, he played great uh, for the whole tournament. Won his first Masters. Vern, one of the things that's interesting to me is, um, you know, everybody who's had the kind of career that you've had, and this is, or really in any career, at a certain point. You know, you step back. You step back either for age, you step back for health. Um, you're not out of it. You're still calling, but you certainly in the last two years have stepped back from the kind of schedule that you had for 30-plus years. What is that? Mm-hmm. What has that adjustment been like just um, after a lifetime of travel, after a lifetime of going to a stadium, especially in the SEC week after week, just no longer doing that anymore? Well, it was uh, – I was glued to the games. Uh Nancy and I live, as you know, in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. We've been there since 1984. And uh, we it was appointment television for us. I watched Brad and Gary and Allie. Uh, I don't think I missed a week. And there were moments during our viewing of, uh, of the SEC games that were very poignant. Uh, let me say up front that I think Brad and Gary clicked right away. And Allie contributes in a in her own wonderful fashion. <laughs> so we we our hope was when Sean and I discussed my exit, our hope was that we made a smooth transition. Uh, it was important to CBS. It was important to Gary. Uh, important to Craig Silver that the right man be picked, and it wasn't hasty. Uh, and and they picked Brad, who had worked at CBS previously. Uh, back in, He was at the 92 Olympics in Albertville for us doing speed skating. Yep. And I've known him since he came on the air in Atlanta with the, with the Falcons as their radio voice. Uh, we have a great relationship. and But I, I will tell you, I got very nostalgic at times. Uh, I spent 17 years of my life there, and it turned out, and I think I've shared this story with you before. It was not my choice to go to the SEC. Uh, I was working in 1999 with Dan Deerdorf, and uh, I must say, life is pretty good if you're the number two guy in the NFL. I never got the number one in the NFL. NFL. Right. Uh, Summerall was for a long time, and then Jim Nance. Uh, but that's a pretty nice way of life if you're if you're in the, in the NFL. <clears throat> especially in the, in the number two spot, because we got a lot of significant games. Right. But then uh, I've shared with you before that, Sean, I, I kept reading my my name in, in the papers about 
uh, well, my name linked with Dick Enberg, that there's a possibility that that uh, Dick, who was not happy at NBC despite his 30-some years there, was going to make himself available to uh, CBS. And I kept hearing this rumor, and I thought, well, it can't affect me <clears throat> because I was the number two guy. He was not going to settle for uh, any number two position. Well, ironically, uh, at least for me, it was ironic that he said, yes, I'm, I'm not happy at NBC for any number of reasons in his case. Uh, and I know I've told you this. I called Sean because I kept reading about this. Uh, Rudy Martsky and USA Today was all over it. So I called Sean and I said, I'm just curious about what I keep reading. And uh, Sean said, well, I don't think I don't think we'll sign him. He's a big ticket item. And uh, I just can't see us really pursuing him. And he went on in that vein for a little bit. And then he paused. He said, now, in the unlikely event that we hire Dick Enberg, how would you feel about going and doing the SEC? And I said the appropriate things and hung up the phone and thanked him. And I turned to Nancy, who was in the kitchen where our phone is at home. And I said, honey, pack your bags for Tuscaloosa. <laughs> and uh, uh, and then the, the, the decision was made, and Dick came over as the number two guy. And we were fast friends. Uh, uh, this is, as you know very well, uh, it's a small fraternity, and if you're working for a network or ESPN, or and of course there was no Fox back when I came to to uh, CBS in '82, we all know each other. And I had first met Dick when he was doing the Rams radio, and I was doing the Cowboys radio. That goes back to 1972. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah, and. Uh, so we had a, a, you know, almost a 35-year. I can't do the math anymore. My mind is going. Uh, but we we remained fast friends, and uh, and then when he decided to retire, I thought, well, he's stepping out at the right time, uh, and I wanted to do that. Uh, that uh, that four-game stretch, going from noon to 11 or 12 at night is fraught with peril. Yeah. And uh, by the time you get to the fourth game, you pray to heaven is uh, competitive. You, uh, they can put an eight for a nine uh, with a nine seed, or they can do a 14 and a three, but you just help me help get me through the night. And uh, I've known guys, and you have too, who made a mental slip or a misidentification of a player. And it can be painful, and it can be injurious to your career. So I didn't want that to happen. I I really wanted to step out uh, on a high note, and more or less my choice. And it was time. It was time. Um, But, boy, going back to work, from Madison Square Garden to Augusta, (laughs) uh, those are pretty good bookends. No doubt. One of the things, Vern, that I know we have talked about before— I'd love you to share this uh, story was there was a time when you were at CBS and Pat Summerall was obviously um, part of the number one team with John Madden. Pat Summerall a couple of times had to go into rehab for um, yeah. for alcoholism. 
And there were moments, if and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe I'm right. There were moments where you thought that one, for starters, you worked with John Madden, and then two, I think there were times when you thought that you were going to get bumped up to be the number one NFL broadcaster at CBS because of um, because of Pat's issues. Is, is that correct? I mean, your career in you know had whatever happened to Summerall gone differently, it it could have been Lundquist and Madden as opposed to Summerall and Madden. Yeah, I, I think that is uh, correct. Uh, at least, uh, I don't know that uh, our executives ever thought that. I think they always hoped, as I did, that, that Pat could conquer his demons. Uh, but I did work with with uh, with John, uh, John Madden. I, I think over, I did about 50 games with John because uh, during that period, and this is roughly 86 to uh, well, I don't know, 94, something like that. Uh, uh, Pat was doing golf in the summer, and then he transitioned uh, for two weeks of tennis at the U.S. Open. So I filled in for him with John, and I would do four games a year with, with John. Mm-hmm. And I think probably I, I, I did not wish Pat ill. I mean, I, I know him well, knew him well. Uh, he was uh, an interesting mix of different personalities he could be. And he battled uh, his alcoholism for much of his life. Uh, and then he went sober. His second trip to Betty Ford, he became sober. And uh, until the day he died, he never had another another drink. And uh, so he, I'm sure, Richard, that, uh, you know, we all are aspirational and I was in the back of my mind, and I never expressed it, even to Nancy, I don't think, that there was a chance if Pat didn't make it that I would get that uh, very coveted spot. But it didn't work out. I can tell you exactly uh, when I knew that he was going to be back. Uh, I was doing a postseason wild card game. Uh, I think this would have, I think it was 94, with john in chicago we had new orleans at chicago and uh we were up in the booth having gone through our pregame prep and we had a, a landline phone an old rotary dial phone uh in the broadcast booth at uh, soldier field and the phone rang and john picked it up and uh, there was a great expression of uh, of warmth and joy on his face and he said, Ben, it's good to talk to you. How are you? Oh, it's Pat Summerall hmm. uh, calling to say they're going to let me out. I, but that's a bad phrase. They're not going to, you know, he was, he had, com- he had successfully completed uh, his treatment. And so and it was great for everybody who loved John and Pat. Right. Uh, and it's just one of those things that happens. I mean, there are very few guys who are, anointed early in their career and you just know they're going to be the top guy at some level. Al Michaels is one of them. And I would say, honest to God, Jim Nance was too. Uh, and, and they're, they're guys like that. I mean, when I came into the business, the big three were Kurt Gowdy, uh, Jim McKay and, uh, and, and Chris Schenkel. Right now there's somebody I'm leaving out, I'm sure. But, those were guys who were firmly established, as was Pat. And uh, 
those those jobs as the number one guy, Brent Musburger was for a long time. Uh, those jobs are really rare that, that any of us get to that spot. Vern, I want to ask you before you, you finish up this, just because it's interesting to me. But like you, you had an you you have had an amazing career, but you were so often number two, the number two broadcaster yeah. for the NFL. Um, you know, you would uh, you had you know you called Tanya and Nancy at the Olympics, but there was somebody who was the host of the the Olympics until you got the SEC package, which. I think a lot of listeners will find stunning. You had never led a broadcast package. You were always never, the number two. Never. What? Um, yeah. And for a while, I know this just from having talked to you. That really that was tough for you until at a certain point in your career, and maybe this is what happens with age and wisdom. Um, <laughs> you were able to deal with that a little bit better. But that um, throughout your career, right? That was really frustrating. That you did have these great assignments, but you could never get to the the top spot at, at for a particular uh, broadcast package. Uh, it was quite frustrating uh, for the first uh, 18 years of my career at CBS. I was Avis to three or four other guys at Hertz. <laughs> right. And uh, and I, I did. I mean, I, I know that we discussed this. I started at the network level in 1974, uh, and I worked for ABC for eight years until I, I got uh, a, a very minimal offer from CBS in 82. And uh, I was married to someone other than Nancy, and we were living in Dallas, and I was working at uh, WFAA as a sports guy. But I was also, during the fall, I would leave for a college assignment uh, and do that as the number three or number four guy. And then... Uh, I would fly to wherever the Cowboys were playing, either back in Dallas-Fort Worth or on the road to Pittsburgh or Washington, D.C. or Philly. Uh, so my, my plate was very full, but I had a 20-mile drive from downtown Dallas to my home in the mid-cities mid in, in uh, a town of Colleyville. When I lived there, it was very small letters, and now it's all caps, um, when the Rangers opened up in uh, in Arlington, due south, uh, all the baseball players, not all, but many of them moved out there. Ironically, Summerall moved out there with Cherry, uh, his widow, hmm. um, and it became the she-she place to live. Well, we were long out of there. But I would make that 20-mile drive twice a day in town, into town and home at about 11 o'clock. And I'm not proud of this, but I would churn inside and I would get so darn angry uh, at what I perceived to be uh, a, a blockage of my ascension. Not that it was deserved, but I thought it was. I thought uh, I could. I, I'll tell you this story. It's pr I think it's pretty interesting about human relations and evolution of, uh, of spirit and personality to a degree. The guy in my gun sights, not literally, of course, but was a man named Chuck Howard. And he was he was the uh, executive producer of sports at ABC under Rune Arledge. And he then he dictated my career, whether it was up or down or sideways. And when I started doing college football at ABC in 1974, Keith Jackson had taken over as the number one guy. 
and still is regarded and um, by me as well as the greatest college football announcer ever. I mean, he was so distinctive, uh, and we became good friends. The number two guy was Chris Schenkel, who had been demoted from the lead spot. Number three, and people don't remember this, was somebody named Al Michaels. Wow. And he spent a short amount of time at, uh, at ABC, and I was the number four guy. And I was so frustrated that I couldn't I, – I was not allowed to expand uh, to other sports. Uh, I, they would throw in the occasional golf tournament. Uh, I, would, I never did basketball there. Uh, and I missed the two Olympics that occurred – uh, I, I, I use this story in speeches. Uh, here's where my status was at ABC. Uh, uh, and when they were all at Lake Placid in 1980, uh, I was assigned to fill in for Chris Schenkel on the Pro Bowlers Tour in Peoria, Illinois. That is a pretty blatant sign that your career is not the, on the fast track. And uh, I had missed Lake Placid. Uh, and somebody named Al Michaels seized the moment, so to speak. Right. And uh, do you believe in miracles? Uh, and I, yeah, I was very frustrated by the whole process until, and I, I took the SEC job, Richard, begrudgingly. I took it because I was told this is your new assignment. And uh, I laughingly had said, have said, there are no Ritz Carltons or four seasons in the Southeastern conference. Uh, and there are a lot of long road trips, but then it, uh, you know, the skies opened up and the hand came down and put me on the forehead. And he said, you're going to realize soon, this is the greatest time you've ever had. And I did recognize that, uh, very soon. And of course, in retrospect, uh, those 17 years were extraordinary for both Nancy and me. I want to, uh, you know, you, um, you called so many amazing moments in the SEC, uh, you know, prayer, Jordan Hare, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. did you, um, is there one for you that stood above the rest? And maybe it's not one of the ones that we think of that's sort of the I iconic calls, but if you, is there a signature game where you just, whether it was the game or whether you felt it was your broadcaster performance that for you stands above the rest in the SEC? Yeah, there is, and, and uh, it's pretty obvious, uh, the one you just mentioned. Right. Uh, that, uh, I, I, I've said many, many times, it had the greatest finish in college football. And then on my more sober moments, I paused and I thought, wait a minute, how about Texas-USC in 2005? That was not for the conference championship. That was for the national championship, and Keith called it. Uh, so that was a confluence of, of uh, great play on the field and a wonderful broadcast uh, in, in, in my memory. So, But that is it for me in 17 years. Uh, now, there are a handful of others that I don't think people would – that game was so memorable because we had number one against number four, and then the way it uh, – it ended with such drama on a missed 57-yard field goal. Right. So that's a kick. You're talking uh, kick six is for you the yeah. uh, the number one yeah. game, right? Prayer Jordan yeah, Hare was a couple weeks earlier with the uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, of course. The, yeah, the wide receiver yeah. making that crazy catch, right? So yeah, the the kick six game um, 
which I've written about, and that's Chris Davis obviously returning that kick. But I, not only did I think you and Gary were sort of at the top of your game, and you've mentioned this, and it's very generous of you as well, but the production crew on that game, that's about as good a produced and directed last 10 minutes as we'll ever see in a college football broadcast. I totally agree. Uh, and let me give a shout-out right now when given the opportunity. Uh, Craig Silver has been the producer of that package for uh, since we got back in college football. I believe in 96, right. I was consumed by the NFL at that time. Uh, the director, when I came on board was Bob Fishman, who just completed directing his, I think 35th or 36th, uh, championship game, wow. uh, Villanova. And, uh, and then he was replaced by Steve Milton. Uh, and that was maybe 14 years ago. And Steve is also our lead director on all of our PGA golf cast, uh, telecast, including uh, the Masters and the PGA. And the two of them in the, in the truck just led us to uh, – I've got so many memories of that last 10 minutes. Uh, more, most specifically, I think, it's almost an afterthought now. But A.J. McCarron hit Amari Cooper with a 99-yard touchdown pass on the first play of the fourth quarter. Hmm. Well, it's, it's in the footnotes. Uh, and then the last few minutes, uh, Sammy Coates caught a touchdown pass with 37 seconds tied up. Alabama took the kickoff, got a first down. And then the, the key play in the entire sequence was when uh, T.J. Yeldon caught a pass and got into potential field goal range uh and i don't know if you remember this specific uh, part of the game but uh, did he or did he not go out of bounds right stop the clock with a second second. right right yeah and nick saban threw the red flag well it took them forever to make a decision and at one point craig said into gary's ear and mine as well uh, they're asking us to coordinate two camera views one from the end zone and one from the 35-yard line to get the best possible synchronized view of when his foot came down. And after about seven minutes at least, and endless replays, and then finally the synchronized replay, uh, Matt Austin, the the referee, said, uh, please put one second back on the clock. Well, we both felt like he would uh, throw it to the end zone and go go to extra to sudden death, and instead they put this young fresh redshirt freshman out there to try a 57-yard field goal. And then Chris Davis caught it nine yards deep and returned it for the touchdown. And where I thought it was so brilliantly done, uh, Gary and I have the discipline, I'm very proud of this, to know when to shut up. And uh, we all know guys who talk too much, but both of us in that moment said, let this play out. And Steve Milton should have won an Emmy for his direction of that game. Uh, In a a minute and 21 seconds, and I've seen the play uh, dozens and dozens of times. Uh, In 21 seconds, Gary and I didn't say a word, and Steve made 21 camera cuts during that 81 seconds. And it was visually the brilliantly told and documented story. 
just his wide shots, his close-ups, his mediums, and, and and you didn't need to say anything. It was all in the reaction of the players, both sides. And then finally, uh, after 81 seconds, I said, well, you might want to see that again. And then Gary summed up the whole thing of, about the third replay, and uh, he pointed out that Alabama – had its field goal protection team on the field. And uh, thus they didn't have what Gary uh, perceived as real athletes. Uh, There were no track guys out there and no linebackers. Uh, And Gary's summation on the third replay was, well, no wonder they couldn't catch him. (laughs) There were nothing but fat guys out there. And and it's still my favorite moment in the 17 years. Uh, I was so proud of uh, of everybody, all the technical crew, of whom there are about 55 on an average SEC telecast. Uh, It was collaborative television at its very best. Vern, you mentioned something that's interesting to me. I always thought you were really good at um, what they call in the business laying out, basically being Mm -hmm. quiet after a – something incredible happens. Um, but not everybody is. It, do you have any sense as to why? I feel like every broadcaster should lay out after a great moment to let the crowd and the images tell the story. But so often we still see, um, I think the best do it, by the way, the best broadcasters do it. But so often, Vern, we still see people over-talking a great moment. Um, why do you think that? Is it a confidence thing? Is it an ego thing? Why Why, why don't more broadcasters lay out? Uh well, I, I mean, you you raise a very valid point. I, I think Ray Scott was the minimalist of all minimalists, and younger people would not remember him, but he was with CBS uh, and did the Green Bay Packers, and uh, he was a role model for me. I had several when I was in my 20s, uh, and I became really good friends with Ray, and uh, we all we could, all of us who are in this business for any length of time can sum up his commentary for a football game with the Packers back in the 60s and 70s. And it was really three words. Uh, Star, Dowler, touchdown. (laughs) And that was it. And and Pat was great at that, too. Now, I don't have an answer for why, but as you were asking the question, I'm thinking about various broadcasters. And there's some... uh, you want to gag some of them. And uh, there's one guy, and it's not Jim Nance, but there's an anchor uh, who finds it absolutely impossible to not talk over a potential champion's walk up the 18th on the final day. Uh, And it just drives me nuts. I have the liberty now, Rich, of sitting at home, and I I do watch a lot of golf and football and basketball, uh, but I have the liberty of yelling at my television set. <laughs> and uh, I do so vociferously. And Nancy will look at me and kind of uh, with a wry grin. And it, the, implication, the implication in her look is leave it alone. But I just find it so annoying. And I don't have an answer for, for whom or for why. Uh, I don't think it's ego. I just think it's discipline. Mm. And we all are told from a very early age, and if you choose this craft, let 
let the moment breathe. That's the phrase I've always heard and thought of. Uh, and I am very proud of the fact that I'm perceived, as you said, as one who doesn't overtalk the moment. Uh, and my favorite of all of those is that minute 21 of kick six. Right. By the way, I just, uh, I'll, I'll admit to a certain self-aggrandizing moment here. <clears throat> the kick six came from Rod Bramlett, who was the Auburn radio announcer and a really good guy. Well, I, I, when when Davis got up and died, he was uh, surrounded by teammates who were pummeling him. My last words were an answered prayer. And I thought, hmm, that seemed appropriate in my self-indulgent moment. And then all of a sudden, it was not referred to as the answered prayer game. It was the kick six. So hats off to Rod Bramlett. Nice. Um, one of the things that's always interesting, um, Vern, about your career to me was that you um, you called the famous uh, Duke-Kentucky game where Leitner was perfect at the game-winning shot. Mm-hmm. But you've always historically said you, you don't like that broadcast. You don't think that broadcast was the kind of quality you were used to. It's very interesting to me that um, a game so famous, so iconic, um, that the broadcaster of that game has real self-criticism of his or her performance. Why, why is that? Why don't you think that that your call of that game did not match the the dramatic moment of that game? Well, this, let me just make a slight correction. <clears throat> My disappointment is the, is the basket mate call. Ah, okay. <clears throat> when Leitner, uh, Leitner canned it, uh, he was 10 for 10 from the field and 10 for 10 from the free throw line and grabbed seven rebounds. And uh, all I could come up with was yes. And I've laughingly said since then, I just channeled my inner Marv Albert and let it go. Uh, but I, I thought we had a decent broadcast, Bill Ra- uh, by, uh, Lenny Elmore and me. See how naturally that came, Bill Raftery? Yes, it's, it's uh, always. all these years. Right. Uh, but Lenny and I thought we, we did ourselves well during. I, the, my disappointment was that I couldn't come up with any, anything more emphatic with then yes, gotcha. and yet Marv Albert is. And I, I tell you what, Richard, I didn't watch a VHS of the game for eleven years, and and the reason I didn't is I was afraid watching the telecast would would Im, impede my memory uh, of a uh, pretty decent telecast, and so Bill and I, Raftery, were doing the regional finals in Minneapolis uh, in March of 2003. And uh, we were an hour and a half away from going out to the, to the basketball arena. And Bill called my room and he said, uh, ESPN Classic has just put on the Duke Kentucky game. You might want to watch it. You guys did pretty well. So I picked it up, oh, probably six minutes gone in the first half. And I watched it all the way through to the end and I did. I, I, and when it was over, I said, well, that was not bad, except uh, I just didn't think I got the, I got the call appropriately on, on the last basket. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, you, do, I do know Alexander Wolf. Of course. Okay, I knew you would. Sports Illustrated, well-known, uh, specialized in college basketball, but one of the great senior writers of Sports Illustrated. Absolutely. Well, he called me. 
they were doing a retrospective on the game uh, and the whole Duke, uh, Duke and Kentucky rivalry over the years. And he called me a year later. Uh, so this would have been in March of 93. And he said, I just sat down and watched the tape of the telecast from start to finish. And I'm just curious uh, as to why you never mentioned that Leitner was perfect from the field, from the free throw line, and with the exception of Leitner stepping on the midsection of a Kentucky sub named Aminu Timberlake. Uh, but he said, you never mentioned that prior to the last shot, uh, Christian Leitner was nine for nine. And I told him uh, and, and put somebody uh, on the chopping block, and that was my statistician uh, that I'd had in football and basketball for 20 years. Well, he had this weird, uh, uh, weird idea of how to keep stats. He put little red plastic grocery counters where they were when they were doing uh, uh, a survey of what they have on the shelves and they count the with these little counters and he had about six of them in front of him and that's how he kept stats on team and players hmm. well during that entire game he was so involved in what we were witnessing he never let me know that Leitner was was uh, uh, perfect for the game I didn't know it until after the game was over and we were handed a stat sheet and I looked at it and it was, Oh my God. Uh, I never mentioned this cause I wasn't aware of it. You know, it's just, so many things about that game, Richard are very, very memorable. Uh, not the least of which was Bob Ryan from the Boston globe, uh, coming over to us about two minutes after the celebration had began to subside. Uh, and he looked down at Lenny, and he, Lenny, of course, was a star at Maryland in 74. And many had up until that game regarded uh, Maryland, North Carolina State for the ACC championship in 74. And it was 104-103, I believe, and NC State won it. And at that time, only one team was allowed per conference. There were no wild card spots. Right. And Ryan said to Lenny, until tonight, I thought your game against North Carolina State was the greatest college basketball game ever. Uh, how do you feel relative to your memory of that game and what you witnessed tonight? And Lenny took it a long pause. And then he looked up at Bob and he said, I think this one was better. Wow. Uh, in, in, in part because of the way it was played, uh, but also the – the, the consequences. I mean, one team when he played, Lenny played, uh, the the losing team was knocked out of the tournament. Here, uh, the winning team, of course, advanced. And uh, for Lenny to say he thought the one we had just witnessed was more significant than the one in which he played 18 years previous, I thought was pretty pretty significant. And uh, the other quick story uh, is. We had Leslie Bister as our sideline reporter and the Kentucky broadcaster, one of the legendary radio announcers in college basketball, was a guy named Kay Wood Ledford. And he was in his 39th year of, during, of doing Kentucky basketball. Well, we stationed Leslie 
about, and again, Craig Silver was my producer on this one, so we go back a long way. Uh, we stationed Leslie within striding dis- distance of Kaywood Ledford, and she was going to acknowledge his contribution to the sport, uh, and she never got on the air. The game was so compelling that Craig could not have find, find a spot for her wow. to uh, address. And here's the fascinating thing about it. When the game ended, I had my eyes, first of all, on the players, you know, the Kentucky guys walking up, slumped over, but then the joy of uh, of the Duke players. And Mike Krzyzewski, instead of going over to the Duke play-by-play guy, turned and made a beeline for Kaywood Ledford and went on the air live with him uh, before he did his uh, contracted appearance on Duke Radio. And the purpose, he said, was to uh, honor honor Kaywood and acknowledge all that he had meant to Kentucky basketball and indeed all of college basketball, which I just thought was a very classy thing. Lou, did you want to ask Vern? I do because you know, hearing Vern tell these stories, I remember exactly where I was when this game happened, and you know. In movies, there are such things as classic lines and there are throwaway lines or lines that only like the diehards really remember. And I obviously remember the Leitner shot, but my favorite call from that game had to be, and you brought him up, when he stepped, when Christian Leitner, who was hated by so many people but loved by Duke Nation, steps on Aminu Timberlake and then... Your broadcast partner said, well, I think he might have done it in 10. And you went, yes, he did. And the way you just jumped right out there, because everyone who was a broadcaster, he was the darling. He was the face of college basketball. And to hear you sound so disappointed and angry at when he stepped on him, you were like, he did that on purpose. I know he did. And it was just, to me, that's something that you did not hear a lot of broadcasters do, especially to Leitner. Uh, I appreciate that. On the, on the 20th anniversary of that game, so this would be 2012, uh, CBS did a retrospective on it, and they put Lenny and me uh, into a, 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 a improvised broadcast studio at the Waldorf Astoria. I was up there for the uh, Hall of Fame, Coaches All-American Hall of Fame dinner, National Football Foundation Hall of Fame dinner. And they flew Christian up from, I think he lives in West Palm Beach in Florida. And so he came in, and it was really a well-produced uh, feature. They put the three of us in, in a circle, and then they taped us as we watched the replay of the game. Yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, it really was. And when we got to the Amino Timberlake thing, uh, Christian reacted viscerally, and he said, I just knew you guys were going to include that tape. And I said, well, Christian, we had to, because I (laughs) I still believe you should have been kicked out of the game. And look at the consequence if you're not being ejected. And he said, well, let me explain. And, and I looked for it on the tapes. It wasn't really in camera range or, or we weren't focused on him defensively. And he contends to this day that somebody uh, took, gave him a headlock and wrestled him to the floor. Well, he's, he was uh, uh, very hot under the collar, so they had to go down to the offensive end, and he was convinced it was Timberlake. And that's why he stepped in his midsection, he says. <laughs> uh, and and uh, so we acknowledged his uh, 
uneasiness. His, his defense. Yeah. yeah, you let you let the defense yeah. give its uh, give its argument. Let the viewers yeah. uh, viewers judge. Vern, who are um, who are the some of the broadcasters today that you really enjoy? Um, and I'm just going to make that open ended. Um, who, when you're watching, who do you like, and why do you like them? Uh, I I am a very big fan of Ian Eagle. Uh, he is one of the warmest guys I know, but at the same time, he has a wit and is sometimes very sarcastic. Uh, he's very. I, I share a story with you. When when uh, uh, Dick Enberg retired, he and Dan Fouts had worked together, and Dan and Jerry Fouts and Nancy and I are still close friends. Uh, across, they live in in Bend, Oregon. Yeah, great but, couple. Nice, nice, nice. People. Yeah, oh, they really are, and. Uh, we still correspond. Well, when Dick Enberg left, Dan called me, and he said, you know Dick is retiring? And I said, yes, of course I do. He said, well, uh, uh, I, want to, I want to ask you if you'll come back and do the NFL with me. And I said, Dan, that ship has sailed. No, I'm, I'm so entrenched now that I don't ever want to leave it. And he gave me two names, and I don't want to embarrass the other guy. Uh, but he's at CBS. And then he said, they've given me a choice. I knew you were going to say that, so they've given me a choice, and Iron Eagle is one of the two. And I said, call him the minute you put down the phone for this and say, you want to work with Iron Eagle. I knew Iron well enough, well enough to know, and Dan's got a, a kind of an offbeat sense of humor, but he really has one. And Iron Eagle uh, is just so gifted and so well-received as a broadcaster. Well, they, they, you know, they, they paired them, and now they're a very solid number two. And Ian does it all. He took my place in the, in the uh, March Madness this year. That's right. And good, good for him. Yeah, good for him. He and Jimmy Spinarkel, uh are still doing, uh, are still doing, uh, God love him, the Brooklyn Nets broadcast. That's masochistic. Uh, okay, let's see. Uh, I've become good friends with Bob Costas over the year. Uh, he's known mainly, uh, basically now for hosting, and uh, but he's a baseball fanatic. I think we all know the story about uh, about him carrying a Mickey Mantle baseball card from Topps Gum right. uh, in his wallet. But uh, I, I did give you a quick personal story about Bob, too. I was lucky enough, gosh, he goes back three or four years to receive uh, the Ben Scully Lifetime Award uh, given by Fordham University in, in New York. And, uh, I was the seventh so honored, and Bob was in the previous six. Uh, it's a pretty nice list to be a part of, and uh, Bob was not able to be there. Uh, it turns out because his, one of his sons, I think, was graduating from college that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the next day, I went from Gotham Hall on Broadway, uh, and and the next night we next day we flew to Seguin, home of my alma mater, uh, Texas Lutheran University, because I was destined to give the the commencement speech the next day. So we checked in to what passes as a five star hotel in Seguin, and it was a long way from our accommodations in New York City, and Bob called me. Uh, the the 
evening that we arrived in Seguin, he said, I want to apologize to you for not being there, but I had obligation to my family. I said, I certainly understand that. He said, let me just, and Ben Scully doesn't travel or, uh, anymore, and he wasn't then, but he videotaped uh, opening comments to introduce me. And he had done the same for Bob, and uh, Pat Summerall's won it. Anyway, he, he said, just tell me, when Ben Scully came on from the broadcast booth at Dodger Stadium and started talking about you, didn't that just make the hairs on your forearms stand up at attention? And I said, oh, my gosh, yes. You know, he is widely acknowledged, certainly as the greatest in his particular sport, but he's all class. Uh, so Costas is on my list. Uh, NBC. I'm a big fan of Al Michaels. Uh, having known him as for as long as I did, uh, uh, let's see, ABC, ESPN. Uh, yeah, I'm gosh. trying to think. You want, is, there an, is there an ESPN or you want to give a shout out to? Is yeah, it, I, but uh, they've got 9,000 people. Working <laughs> for. That's, that's, that is, uh, that's you know, who I like calling a college football game. Um, I think Joe Tessator is a very, he's going to eventually, he's moving to Monday Night Football, but I think he calls a good college football game. Yeah, yeah. I do too. And then Todd. Blackledge is, is excellent. Has been his partner. Yeah, he's your partner and, for a while. I mean, you know him well. Yeah, Todd was the first six years in the SEC. He's on my short list of great guys I know. Uh, I'm and I'm just keeping it at home here, but I think the world of Brad, uh, and and I, I I'm not going to stand in the pulpit and shout about Jim because Jim gets enough accolades. Right, uh, but I you know he does. He does. I think he's the best golf broadcaster ever, and that takes in a wide range of people. Definitely. But that's where he is most naturally gifted, and uh, he impresses me every time he's on the air with his ability to find little nuggets from the players and then his ability to hold off on telling it until the proper moment. He's the best at that part of it I've ever seen, and that's a direct result of his love of the sport and his willingness to stay late uh, at the golf course after plays have been completed. Uh, somebody at ESPN that I want to shout out. I, don't tell ESPN guys that I'm stumped. <laughs> uh, uh, well, you don't have to, Vern. I mean, I, I don't okay. want to put pressure on you. That You've given a good list. I mean, at, at a certain point, the problem is if you can't mention everybody. So Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm, showing, I'm showing signs of age here, too, Richard. Is that right? <laughs> uh, you know what? Honest to gosh, uh, I, I've been known, and I love the fact that I have a reputation for this, of uh, not only a storyteller, but remembering names and places and incidences from 40, 50 years back. Well, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm 77 now. Uh, I'm having trouble coming up with names of all things. Hmm. And uh, we <laughs> last weekend, weekend before last, so we're in Austin now, as I said. We bought a little townhome here, a uh, little condo. And uh, we had our 60th, 6-0 uh, reunion. 
And out of a class of 500, we had 125 there. Wow, that, and that's pretty good. Yeah, I was really impressed. There were a lot of guys I didn't recognize, uh, and and they, for name tags, they put our high school senior pictures on the Swiss cards. <laughs> well, God love it. Very few of us look anything like that now. One but, of the, one of the things, Vern, I love, and I'm good, the last thing I'm going to ask you is about meeting your wife because I I will always ask you that story every time I have you on the air because it's such a good one. But like, you know, I think people have a, a thought of you and sort of what you look like because most fans have seen you, um, mm. you know, in the SEC over the last 15 years and they sort of know what you look like and they have a sense. But, um, you know, if you look at some of your uh, photos from your days back in Dallas, um, <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, like you, it's amazing. Yeah. People would never recognize you. Like sometimes um, I remember seeing one where you were calling the Cowboys in like the 70s. And you've got like yeah. blonde surfer hair. Um, yes. You know, you look like a guy who really honestly like walked out of like a uh, Charlie's Angels uh, like guest spot or something like that. It's unbelievable. If you, I would re- mention to anybody, go on Google and go to Google Images. And if you go through Vern's career, um, he looks much different. I think I, I feel like I also saw you when you were in your 30s with a mustache. Is that possible? No, no. Oh, I, right, I, maybe not. Okay. I'll, I'll, blonde I'll hair. Blonde the, hair, though. Yeah, and initially, I wore black frame glasses. Right. Okay. Now, that, and I weighed about 130 pounds. Uh, those days are way in my room. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't recognize myself. And to that point, Richard, uh, we, we sat around and, and uh, embellished stories all weekend uh, on the 14th and 15th of April. And uh, all of a sudden, the, the, the topic of choice was our high school senior prom and everybody was naming uh, their date for that night so help me god i couldn't come up with her name and i was embarrassed to admit that and (laughs) then the next morning i woke up and i yelled to my wife oh my god it was marianne bircham and (laughs) i was so proud of myself that i finally got it right but uh uh, yeah, I, those those photos are unbelievable. I know. I just saw. I just saw. I just pulled up a photo of you from uh, 1972. You're calling. Um, this is Rangers uh, spring training. You're working for WFAA, and you right. have a little tiny mic with num with with the number eight on it. Um, yeah, yeah. You, you got the you got blonde hair flowing in the wind. The you got the orange shirt from the 70s with the the seventies slacks. This is it's fantastic. I love going through these uh, these fo- these <laughs> photos, Vern. It's great. Uh, you, well, you you're like quintessential guy from the seventies in this photo. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, the, uh, I can't remember that. You know, <laughs> I know. Sorry. Listen, I can't remember last week myself. Um, yeah. So here's my last one. One of the great stories I think um, of any broadcaster is the story of how you met Nancy. Um, <sighs> I forgot that I should know the state off the top of my head, but I don't. But but the story is, um, I'll set it up and then you can tell the story. But basically, sure. you you met your wife while you were on, uh, while you you were at a restaurant slash bar, and you met your wife who was on a date with someone else. I've now set you up yeah. with the story. Please go ahead. Well, okay, Richard. Uh, this was in 1980. Uh, uh, I can give you the date. I'm. I'm I, see, I can remember that, and that thank God I can remember that. <laughs> right, that's an important. Uh, 
uh, I was uh, recently separated, but not yet divorced. Uh, Nancy had been divorced about five or six years. And she had a very successful career as a radio television spokesperson uh, in Dallas-Fort Worth, but also regionally, and some national commercials. We uh, we have one captured on VHS, if you remember those days. Right. Uh, she, in the middle of a Dallas-Washington game <clears throat> at Texas Stadium. No, it was, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was at Texas Stadium. That's right. <clears throat> and... Uh, we, we accidentally captured her doing a Radio Shack commercial, so we do have evidence <laughs> of a, a small piece of her work. Well, she was single, and I was uh, lonely. And the week before uh, I met her, I just uh, the, the hot area in Dallas back then, I was 40 years old, and the hot area was were discotheques. And I launched myself into a discotheque on Greenville Avenue. That was the main drag for night spots. And I was having an adult beverage at the bar all by myself. I was a coat and tie because I'd just come directly from leaving the studio at WFAA. And a young man, probably 25, came over to me and he said, Mr. Lundquist, I don't mean to bother you, but I know who you are. And I've got to ask you, what are you doing in here? And I said, well, that, that's a little cheeky. Why do you ask? He said, well, look out at the dance floor. Do you see anybody over 30? And I had to admit that I didn't. <laughs> and so I said to the, this young lady, he said, you need to go somewhere where there are folks a little more your age. And I said, well, okay, I appreciate the advice. And I did take it well. And he gave me the name of, uh, he said, it's a mile south on North Central Expressway in Dallas. And it's a restaurant bar called Arthur's. So I said, well, I'll give that a try. So the next week, it was at least a week later, I get off. I didn't want to make that 20-mile drive out to Colleyville. So I said, that kid said Arthur's. And I, I had eaten dinner there as a steak place. So I drifted out to Arthur's, and I walked in. And Nancy was sitting at the end of a bar. She's, she was wearing a green skirt. And she had then and still does the greatest smile I've ever seen. And uh, she was sitting at the bar. There was a very tall guy at the end of the bar, and they were conversing. And then a much smaller guy, uh, his name was Paul Bass, and the big tall guy I recognized, uh, I remember, was Raymond Willie. Well, he saw me come in, and according to Nancy, he said, well, there's Vern Lundquist. Let's uh, invite him over for a drink. So he hollered out to me, he said, come join us. Well, I did. And I kept making eyes at Nancy, and uh, she was kind of bored, I think. So <laughs> but Raymond, Raymond said, listen, I know you're single, and I don't want to catch you <laughs> in nightclubs that are anywhere not your, your style. And I, I really uh, grinned because I was thinking about what had happened the week before. <laughs> right. And he said, I've got a great idea. Let's... Uh, Let's double date. I've got a, a young school teacher that I would love for you to meet. Her name was Janet Fulton. And and, I, and he looked down to Nancy. He said, Nance, what are you doing Thursday night? She said, nothing. And he said to her, okay, then you and I will take Vernon and a blind date named Janice Fulton out to a, a really nice restaurant in Dallas. And I kept making eyes at her and tried to get her attention. Uh, and finally, 
nature called and Raymond departed the premises. And I, like a cobra, I scooped in and I asked her to dance. Well, we got out on the dance floor and, uh, I mean, there's just something immediate between the two of us. And, uh, I finally screwed. I said, how involved are you with Raymond? And she said, none, no, I'm not. This is a blind date arranged by our, uh, our, uh, surgeon, uh, she had an arm surgeon. She had a problem with her arm. And I said, well, in that case, uh, forget about Thursday night. What are you doing Saturday night? And the little coquette looked at me and grinned. She said, I think I'm doing whatever you're doing. <laughs> and uh, we stayed we stayed on the dance floor a little longer than was proper. And I saw Raymond come back to the spot at the bar, and his friend Paul Bass was a stockbroker. And Paul kept positioning him so that his back was to the dance floor. And he could could not see that Nancy and I were beginning to know each other. And uh, finally, finally we walked back and Raymond said, we need to go home. So help me. I watched her, the two of them walk out the door and she'd given me her, her phone number, but I couldn't write it down. So I was hoping to memorize it till I got home and could write it down. And I still remember the, I can't remember my high school prom date, but I can remember Nancy's phone call, phone number <laughs> 1980, uh, and after they left, he pulled up and, and had a valet that parked his Rolls Royce, and I thought, oh, boy. <laughs> well, he was he was the owner of the Coors Beer Distributorship in Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, and it turns out that he was on a hiatus from his regular, and, and they had met at the doctor's office, and he'd asked her out, so... Uh, I was standing with this Paul Bass, and he looked at me, and he said, I want to tell you something. I just really admire your taste, but your discretion uh, leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> and I said, are you telling me Raymond was aware? He said, well, he kept turning toward the dance floor, so I'd, I'd twist him around so he couldn't see what was going on. Well, anyway, end of story, or beginning of story, uh, we did go out that uh, that Saturday night. And, I mean, really fell for each other, despite our history. I mean, we both uh, had been married twice before, not just once. Uh, hers were a little farther in, in, in background than mine. And because of that, we waited two years before we got married, and we did one of the more appropriate things I've ever done, and for her as well. Uh, we went to a family counseling clinic for a week, the best thing we ever did. Nice. And it just... It just helped us, you know, uh, get rid of some baggage. And uh, so we've been married now since 1982, uh, 36 years this year. I love that story. Thank you for telling me that. I, I will ask for the uh, sort of the end note. Did uh, um, Raymond Willie was uh, after he realized this was serious and you guys were married, did you stay in touch? Was he OK with? Uh... Well, we saw. <laughs> yeah. We saw him one more time, and he got back with his girlfriend. Is is steady for two or three years. They just had a pretty serious tiff, and we were invited to a pre-concert event uh, for a concert by Kenny Rogers and uh, and uh, the Gatlin brothers. And the Gatlin brothers were from Dallas, and I knew them, the three of them, very well. But Kenny Rogers, we'd never met, and they had a buffet two hours before the the concert 
at the old Reunion Arena in, in Dallas. And all of a sudden, we were on one side of the buffet line, and we looked up, and there was Raymond. I can't remember his uh, – his, he did get married to her. And so uh, he never did call Nancy back, and he never did call Janet Fulton, as far as I know. <laughs> I, God, I wonder what happened. Maybe she was my high school prom date. Uh, I, I don't know. But Raymond died a few years ago. He was probably in his late fifties, early sixties. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Early. But uh, um, well, that is an amazing story, and it's uh, it's it's kind of cool that you know you. That's one of those things where it's sort of love at first sight, which is great. I mean, you don't often uh, hear about that, but in this case, it was and. And the marriage uh, has, is now on year 36. Um, yeah. Vern, uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking a little bit of time for me today. Um, viewers obviously saw you at the Masters. Your next assignment as of now is the PGA Championship? Yes. yes. Okay. All right. I'm gainfully employed for two events a year. <laughs> we, sh- we should all have that schedule, <laughs> Vern. I love that. Yes, I did. I do too. I I do too. But just back to your original question. I mean, I get quite nostalgic about all the years and I was very, very blessed uh, to have been present at some pretty great moments. Yeah. I mean, uh, absolutely incredible. All right. So I'll make sure I I have this right. The PGA championship is, I want to say August 9th through the, I'm looking up here, August 9th through the 12th. That sound right to you? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And and, and yes, read out where it is. Uh, it's in St. Louis. I, I, I'm gonna thank probably, you. Yeah, it's Bella Bella Rive Country Club. Bella Rive. Bella Rive. Okay, shows you my yeah. golf knowledge there. Um, uh, that's okay. All right, so Bella Rive, and um, I imagine that's going to be pretty exciting, given um, given what we sort the Masters like. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, I golf. think so. The um, only the only thing I've got a problem with is St. Louis in August. Oh yeah, uh, it'll be it'll be a hundred degrees with. 80% humidity. Yeah, make sure your hotel, tell Sean McManus to make sure that hotel room or where, or the place you're staying at, Vern, uh, has air conditioning. That's I, I will. That's I, and I've, I've, I'm quite uh, certain it does. Yeah, I, I would imagine. All right, Vern Lundquist doesn't need any introduction. You know his career, obviously. I mentioned all the stuff at the top. Um, and specific to uh, myself, I, I've known Vern a long time. We've talked many times away um, from interview settings. He really is just a genuinely great guy and a great guy to talk to. He's always been generous with his time for me. Uh, Vern, I can't thank you so much for, uh, for being my third guest on this new podcast and my second guest on my, on my first one. I, 15 years from now, when I start my fourth new one, you'll be the second guest on that too. I'll bring you back. I love that. <laughs> I love that idea. Richard, uh, let me just return what you said. Uh, I've always enjoyed our friendship in addition to our relationship as a uh, sports media critic and, and, uh, and a damn good one. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks Vern. Continued uh, success, best of health. And I will talk to you soon. Be well. Okay. Thank you. All right. And we bring in John O'Ran, the sports media reporter from the sports business daily journal. He has been, uh, he's, he's, he's certainly a podcast roundtable regular with me on the old podcast and he will be here as well john welcome to the it's so weird for me to say welcome to the podcast and welcome to the sports media podcast john this is my first official athletic podcast i only did the teaser one before I'm yeah pretty excited. Well, you're part of that yeah um so um all right let's get into it right away and that is i want to talk to you about the nfl schedule release and get your quick evaluations on what you thought of the schedules the the 
The angle that I took for the piece I did on The Athletic a couple days ago was the ESPN angle. I talked to Burke Magnus, uh, high-ranking executive ESPN, somebody you know as well as I do, and they were ecstatic, and I don't think they were BSing me. I think they were really, really happy with the Monday Night Football schedule. In particular, they really wanted the John Gruden opener because that's something, obviously, they can market given Gruden's um, relationship to them. So they were happy, and as, John, you have written probably better than anybody the ESPN has been screwed with that Monday night schedule for years. This is the first I've seen in a couple of years where, at least on paper, in my opinion, it's markedly better than what they've gotten before. Yeah, it seems better, but let's be honest, it's the worst one of, 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 of all the packages that's, that's out there. So what I find to be interesting is it's almost like, you know, after several years, it's like, okay, we're going to get what we can get and we'll get whatever crumbs we get. I mean, what what ESPN really wanted and set out was was for John Gruden's first game, which is you know a late night Oakland game. It, it wasn't you know the Patriots versus you know the the, the Packers, the, anybody, or, right. Cow, or or Cowboys versus the Packers. You know, it, it it was just sort of like a neat story that that was out there, which is sort of instructive of how the NFL views Monday Night Football, and it's instructive about how ESPN executives now view Monday Night Football's uh, place in the NFL, in my opinion. John, um, do you um, – and Burke Magnus was very quick to say that, um, you know, one, he said your article about ESPN's sort of relationship with the NFL was correct, and they're obviously taking some means to try to uh, repair that very frosty relationship, including Jimmy Pitaro, the new president, meeting with Roger Goodell and multiple NFL executives. So I don't think you can connect the dots to, like, ESPN got a better schedule because, you know, the relationship among the executives are better – at the same time, John, do you um, – because you've covered this terrain a lot. Do, do you think the ESPN and the NFL are on their way to a better place where ESPN may get a better deal heading forward if they indeed stay with the NFL? Yeah, I think that's undeniable. And I think the, the main reason for that is because John Skipper's no longer there. Hmm. And it's no secret that, that Skipper was just not a football fan. I mean, he, he liked football well enough, but he loved soccer and he loved basketball just didn't like football and he didn't want to deal with sort of placating some of the egos that that are over at the league well you have in jimmy pataro is somebody that grew up loving football he has his favorite football team i can't even tell you who uh, who skipper's favorite team was if he had one in, in football but i know i know he went to unc and and uh, espn invested heavily in college sports while, while he was there um so I, I i think that you know just having new blood at the top that likes that actually likes football. Something as simple as that is uh, is enough to look at the relationship. It's getting better. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you something about John Skipper. His favorite football team was Tottenham, and that tells you sort of where John Skipper's uh, <laughs> alliance has yeah. lied. The English Premier League. You have uh, you reported about the Fox schedule and the potential for FS1 perhaps getting Thursday a Thursday night football game if the um, if the baseball playoffs sort of go to a certain place. Can you? Can you explain the ramifications of one? Let me know what you thought of Fox's Thursday night football package. And then two, what could theoretically happen if the baseball playoffs go a certain way? One, the, the Thursday night package is the best that it's ever been. And, and part, part of that is because Fox told the NFL, you know, take some of the games that would have anchored our 4 p.m. or 425 Eastern um, Sunday time slot and put them on Thursday. Because unlike um, CBS, which really wanted to protect its uh, its late Sunday window because that's you know, that, that draws more viewers than any other window in uh, in the NFL. 
Fox is saying, like, we're just one big NFL. We own the whole Thursday night. We're not splitting it. You know, take uh, they, they were happy to uh, mix and match, and they were able to do that. And what Fox is betting on, frankly, is that people on Sunday afternoon are going to watch late Sunday regardless of who it is because it'll be the only game on. So they, they, they feel like – you know, that that's an audience that, that will be there. That's interesting. Um, uh, we'll get to the, I just want to sort of follow up on that. You know, I, Anthony Krupe, who's one of the guys we really like from Ad Age, um, in talking to him on Twitter, he didn't necessarily think that was a guarantee, John. And I'm kind of side with him that while that is an open window and you get most of the country watching it, you do, you know, you still have to have a big game, I think, to attract people from Maine to California. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I think that, that you, you certainly would get better numbers with the big game. But there's not a ton of competition. College football doesn't play on Sunday afternoons right there. Great point. There aren't, that, there aren't other sports that are really playing um, uh, opposite the late game window um, for, for, for the NFL. And it, it frankly, is the way that CBS treats um, its Thanksgiving Day game. So, you know, everybody's going to be in front of the TV on Thanksgiving. We may as well have the Lions play. Who, who cares who they play? Because uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to get that audience that's going to sit on, on Thanksgiving no matter what. And then, all right, and then the Fox, what can happen with the um, Thursday night football if the baseball playoffs go a certain direction? You know, so I always think reporters aren't necessarily biased, but we, we just want anarchy, right? I am <laughs> praying for rainouts because I think the idea of uh, if, if there's a rainout and the World Series game goes to Thursday, Fox all of a sudden is committed to have to show the World Series on Fox on Thursday and, of course, show Thursday night football on Fox on Thursday. So there's potential for two times where if that happens, they would have to move the NFL game to Fox Sports 1. Wow. Of course, it will still be on the NFL network and whatever digital um, partner they, they end up get, coming up with. But then the, the competition between who gets more viewers, NFL network or FS1, will be, I mean, for, for my for my little world, that, that, that will be wild to see. And yeah. I just think it will be a fun story to do if there is a rain out. And it hurts the – it would hurt the – it would hurt the season averages significantly if that shifts from Fox to FS1. Uh, oh, absolutely! But boy, would that would that help out FS1 a lot? Oh my God! Yeah, Just it would be. In a, I mean, drawing people there. Yeah, I don't know what the the FS1 record right now. I think is a Cubs playoff game. I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but you'd have to think that an NFL game would be sitting there as you know potentially being you know the most watched ever FS1 broadcast or among that. Maybe I'm missing something, but. Uh, you know, it would be in the top five, I would imagine. Um, oh, yeah, and, and and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I, I would expect the regular season NFL game would blow away anything else that, it, uh, that Fox Sports 1 is at out there. It also seemed to me that uh, NBC got a traditionally excellent NFL schedule. No surprise there. I think the uh, the league they takes always do. Yeah, the yeah. league takes care of NBC more than any other network. What do you think of CBS's schedule? Um, they do, as their PR people will remind you, they have the Super Bowl this year. So it's going to be a great year for CBS because whoever has a Super Bowl – um, you know, Super Bowl years at networks were always really good and usually really, really good for revenue and, and money. But what do you think of their, um, in general, their sort of week one through the regular season schedule? Yeah, honestly, I don't I, I have really much of an opinion on, on CBS's schedule because it just seems like, you know, the Sunday afternoon schedule that, right. that, that they've always had. And I, I think what's going to be interesting is to see, because Fox's schedule got thinned out so much by Thursday night football. It's going to be interesting to see what happens on these cross flexes and see what what uh, games 
uh, the NFL flexes off of Fox onto CBS, which always helps out CBS's um, you know ratings during the season. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're CBS, what you got to hope for is um, you hope you root for the AFC teams uh, that you really need to be dominant to be dominant. The Patriots, you really could use the Raiders being good this year. That's uh, you know um, the Jaguars are going to be good, maybe. There's more interest in them a little bit, if especially if they possibly can get... the Jaguars are kind of a killer for everybody. Exactly, but so we need a better sort of a better offense for them. Um, speaking of um, the NFL, I wanted to as we sort of rapid fire here. I want to ask you about the NFL draft because it's very very interesting this year, John. In that we have the addition of Fox, which I think is going to and they're going to be simulcasting the NFL Network's coverage. That absolutely is going to take viewers away from Fox. I'm sorry, take viewers away from the NFL Network. But more importantly, for the larger overall, is they really, I think, are going to take viewers away from ESPN. So we're in a situation, interestingly enough, where I think more people than ever before are going to watch the draft. But we could see the average numbers down for the NFL Network and certainly for ESPN. Well, I think that's certainly what, what you're going to see. And in fact, that, I think that's what you know, every time everybody talks about NFL ratings declines in, in live games you know there's so many more windows now so the average the average game is actually going down but the number of people actually sampling the nfl isn't necessarily dropping it's certainly not as much as, as the average game what is go ahead john oh i i was just going to reiterate what you said i'm dying to see how many you know espn still is de facto the place that i personally go to watch the nfl draft and i'm, I'm very curious to see how much their ratings get hurt by having to go on to a broadcast channel, which is, you know, um, I, I mean, potentially a killer for ESPN, I think. I think it's going to hurt a lot. Um, they're still the dominant player at the draft in terms of viewership-wise, given that I always write about this. I'm, I, I watch pretty much both coverages equally. I like people from both places. Uh, like, I, I think Mayock, far and away, is, in my opinion, the best draft analyst. But there are people, obviously, on ESPN, I think, who are really, uh, who are really interesting. I think Wingo does a great job as host, certainly, over Berman. The the thing, John, that's really fascinating to me on this draft, and I don't know how much you've written about it, but I did a little bit, is ESPN doing this alternative broadcast on ESPN2, a college-centric broadcast where they're going to have the cast of College Game Day with the exception of Herb Street, who's on the main draft, and they're going to fo- they're going to do a college-centric look at the NFL draft. It's very much like a megacast kind of thing. I think that's cool. I don't think they're going to get big viewership, but I think it's such a friendly offering for viewers and and i think it is the future as we head forward because if you think about like espn plus you could do these infinite kind of uh hyper localized kind of ways to cover big events that if you want to just get some niche audience you could totally get it you know when i first heard that they were doing that my my reaction was like of course i can't believe it took them this long to figure out if we're going to be talking about college players why don't we get our main college programming i mean other than Sports Center, is there is there another show that is so identified, another studio show that's so identified with ESPN and College Game Day? I think getting getting that show and putting it at the draft and putting ESPN two on it, and then if, if you're ESPN, you're going to add up both uh, both telecasts and you know the the, the number. The number should, still should be pretty good, but boy, Fox is still going to siphon so many of those viewers away. Agree with that. I like the idea. Though. All right, finally, John, before I bring Neil Best on for like. 12 minutes of Mike Francesa, although I should shoot myself for, for, for doing this. It's for Lou Can I say one thing? For Lou like, as, a, as, a guy in, as a guy that lives in D.C., D.C. sports, I can't think of another sports talk radio host any in any other market that gets as much ink written on him as Francesa. It, I, I, nobody I know in D.C. understands it. Yeah. Like, well, it's, it's, you, the, the, part of it is, as you know, it's a page play. It's kind of a... 
uh, it's he's been on he's he's he was the number one guy in the number one market in the country. He's very uh, you know video. You could relate to some of the sort of videos that sort of got propped up over the years. Him falling asleep, him ranting about something. But yeah, I'm, it must be insane to people in like Des Moines or Lincoln, Nebraska. Like, what? Why is there so much attention on this New York sports talk host? <laughs> Um, so, all right. So I'm not asking about that. I'll, I'll focus on what best. I do want to ask you about get up. Uh, you know, it's, it's the, it's the favorite new program of those who want viewership numbers. We're, <laughs> we're, right. We're only a couple of weeks in ESPN's not doing anything with this program. Now there's too much invested. There's too much, um, you know, between the studio and the talent that said, John, the numbers have not been good. Uh, there's no spinning it. They've, they've been actually bad. And so, um, what do you think happens in the in the next couple of months, which is really interesting to me? Once you get past the draft and the NBA Finals, it's a lot of dead time for these sports talk shows. You know, the the undisputed and those kind of places. They usually try to create controversy to get some eyeballs. What do you do if you're the get ups? Where you know, if you're if you're ESPN management, you don't want to see this thing float to like two hundred and ten thousand, two hundred thousand, one hundred ninety thousand because even though you'll get the bump from the nfl those are very low numbers for studio shows so you got any thoughts as to what the game plan should be over the next couple of months yeah i mean i i think that uh so i'm going to try to give a spin uh, on this and uh, you know we we've i've written about um new shows you know for for decades now and the idea of of following it's da- a daily tracking following of the audience size two three weeks into a show is means it just means nothing. I mean, it, it, the, the numbers are low w- w- without question, but I mean, it just need, need to give it some time. It's a new show. People that like the old show you know, probably tuned in and don't, don't like this show. And it's taking a while for other, uh, other people to find it. I usually wait, you know, a good six months before we go, before we're able to dive in and, and you know, you let people like Connor shell go and make his tweaks to the show. And during the downtime, I think that's where you're going to see some of the tweaks. Um, I, I I don't pretend to know what the tweaks should be, but um, you know, I, I think that you know, in, in talking with the ESPN folks, you know, they're they're happy with how the show is coming coming across, if if not happy with the day to day numbers, uh, ratings numbers of the show. I mean, the, the the show that they promised is pretty much a show that's uh, that's coming out there. It's you know, three uh, type A personalities that are having you know, interesting view and eye of the beholder, right? Uh, chats on sports topics. Um, and so I don't think that they're concerned about it going down to 200. I think that if these numbers hold forth six months from now, then there's a big problem. Uh, and I don't expect that these numbers will hold forth six, six months from now. I, I think that, that it will continue to grow pretty steadily uh, going forward because that's just what, what happens with these types of shows. John O'Ran's a social justice warrior. He's a left winger. He can't criti- he's woke. He can't criticize the show. Um, I'm on the record, John, saying that th- there's not going to be a pop. Um, maybe they hit 310. Maybe they hit 315. I do not think the show has um, a long-term future. Notice, and that's no disrespect to the three people who are on that show. Each have individual talent for sure, but I, I don't think it's being fixed. That's just my take. Um, oh, I, by, by the way, by tweaks, I, I think a, a, a tweak could be like, this talent isn't working well. Let's get that could be, else. and that and that, and that I mean, might game change my thought process if they can uh, figure that out. All right, John, we but, must get to Neil Bass. So we, I think we we ultimately agree with each other. Do we? I have any, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot more optimistic. I have to get to Neil Bass. So I'm so focused on that. All right, John O'Rand is the Sports Business Daily 
media writer and reporter. Please follow him on Twitter. He um, he always produces interesting stuff, and God bless the guy does not get into Twitter fights. John, I will uh, I'll be in touch with you again for sure. I, I know this Absolutely, because man. you you Anytime. are my you are my go to guy when it comes to. Uh, this podcast in terms of the A media guy, mostly because you do not charge me anything. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, you'll have to talk to my agent soon enough. Both of us need better agents. All right, John Orand, everybody. Thanks, John. Thanks, man. All right. Neil Best joins us. We only have nine minutes with him because he, he (laughs) must listen to the beginning of the WFAN afternoon show with all the drama. All right, Neil, just quickly, uh, what is going on right now? Mike Francesa is obviously among the more famous, if not the most famous local sports talk host in America. He went on a long retirement tour. We thought he was done. He's now, based on your reporting, coming back. What what should we know about this? This 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 is an inc- This is like Trumpian with this. Uh, uh, well, Parcells and uh, Brett Favre, and there's a long list of this stuff, right? I mean, I. Look, I mean, at my advanced stage, it takes a lot to surprise me, and uh, this definitely qualifies. I, I thought it was possibly might come back and do the Sunday his Sunday morning NFL show and have that be nationally syndicated, and that would be a way to kind of keep his hand in it, which wouldn't have bothered anybody really. But now he's coming back to you know basically take over from a show that already exists, and I think though Bart Scott, Maggie Gray, and and uh, Chris Garland will stay in a reduced form, which puts them in a bizarre position which is why I'm curious what they're going to say on the radio today. But, yeah, yeah, I, look, I, again, when, when, you're, when you've been around as long as me, it's shocking is usually something I don't say. But, yeah, I'd say I'm shocked. <laughs> so, w- w- Neil, is there, like, what, 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 for those who are sort of Francesaologists, like, w- what should we ascertain here? It's a guy, obviously, who I think miscalculated a little bit of his market value, but also, mm-hmm. and like everything else, Neil, I don't disrespect Frances, especially somebody who's about to, you know, go on full time radio in Toronto. You know, it's an ego thing. It's very hard to give this up. And maybe he miscalculated that he would miss the being Mike Francesa more than he thought. Is that yeah, is I, that fair? I, yeah, I talked to him roughly a month ago when we were coming up to April first, which is when he was supposed to be available to do whatever he wants. And and I was actually surprised at how frank he was in saying on the record about how. Uh, the, it was a bigger adjustment than he expected. He missed it more than he expected. So, yeah, he's actually admitted that. Um, so the, the fact that he kind of needed to get back to some kind of forum to speak his mind is not a shock. The fact that it's happening at FAN is certainly a shock. But there, there aren't that many other options locally. I mean, nationally, there's a lot of things you can do in podcasts, which is what everyone thought he was going to do. Um, but, but, you know, local radio, there's two New York sports stations and WOR kind of dabbles in it and they carry the Mets, but, um, he wasn't going to ESPN and I don't think they wanted him to be, you know, replace Michael Kay. So yeah, he's back. So there was nowhere else to go. There was nowhere else logical to go. And, you know, as you said, he, I do think he, well, he admitted underestimating that how much he would miss having that daily platform. Neil, two things here, because I know you have to listen to the top of this. I mean, what logically is it is it is it logical to expect that he could come back in and while not sort of maybe command the audiences the guy had in the 90s or early 2000s, but but be the most listened to sports talk host at whatever hours he's on at that time? 
Yeah, I think that's very realistic. But of course, whether that actually occurs or not will be fascinating for people like me, and I suppose you to a point also, even right. though you're a, you're a you know multinational corporation now. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, of course, that's going to be interesting. I, I think the short answer is that yeah, it'll 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 help them. He'll probably win. I don't know if he'll win by the margins he used to win. Obviously, early on there'll be a curiosity factor, and then six three to six months into it, it'll be. You know, it'll be Mike Francesa, just like we knew him last year. So I don't know if that's enough to sustain what he used to have. Uh, you know, he Kay was gaining on him before this thing ended. Exactly. And, and Kay, Kay won, you know, by a very narrow margin. He beat the, the replacement show. And, yes, I, I would assume Mike would win in his first quarter. But a year from now, I, like, I don't know. Here's the last one for me, and I, listen, I'm going to come out and say I'm biased. Maggie Gray is a friend of mine. She worked with me for years at Sports Illustrated. I think the world of her, I think she's a, a, fan, a fantastic uh, and smart, uh, not just radio talent, but just multimedia talent. What, um, how do I sort of phrase this, Neil? Um, if you're those guys, you're under contract, obviously. The idea that you're, you know, you're going to quit or do something crazy is just ludicrous. You don't give up that kind of money. But do you, does this move, in your opinion, hurt their marketability if you put them at another time slot in the, station meaning that is the message to the marketplace well these guys couldn't handle the drive time spot don't you know why would you want to listen to them from making this up one to three or is it like hey the one to three audience is maybe different than the three to seven audience and maybe they could find if this is indeed what happens maybe they could find a new audience from one to three yeah well look i mean of course the station is saying we don't think that you could hack it or at least compare it to mike in the in the afternoon drive but you, you know, they could do fine in that time slot. And as you said, grow an audience. And maybe that's where they should have started in the first place to kind of, you know, establish chemistry. And so it, it could work out for them, but it's hard to interpret it as anything other than a diss. I mean, I, I think in terms of actually leave, I don't, I'm not, I don't think any of them are just quitting in, in disgust. I mean, Bart is probably the one most in position to do that if he chose to. But yeah, they're all under contract for two years and they'll get paid. And uh, this could very well help their 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 show, uh, but it certainly puts them in a bizarre position that's not very comfortable, especially if Mike's coming in the door while their show is ending. I mean, the whole thing is bizarre, and people at the station are kind of in shock. And, of course, for the rest of us, it makes for a fascinating story. Neil, what will your next uh, 72 hours be like? You are okay? 72 hours. Well, I mean, I got to watch the draft because that, 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 that's what's going to be. That's what I'm going to tell my grandchildren about is the week that the, the Giants and Jets picked number two and three in the draft. And Mike Francesa generated more web traffic than they did. So that's that's the craziest thing of this to me. Uh, but he will beat the draft in our web click world. Sure. So do you feel, by the way, I, I, you've referenced you had a, a nice tweet about this, but uh you must feel like Danny Glover in Lethal Weapon, uh, right? The first I, I mean, when basically yeah. Gibson basically throws him to the ground. Danny Glover's balding. He's like fifty something years old, and I think he says, uh, "I'm too old for this shit." Basically, is this? Do you feel that about Francesca, or are you rejuvenated with all this new news? I guess I'll say both, but I do have a little bit of a feeling that that I'm the old cop, you know, who was supposed <laughs> to retire tomorrow and now is in a shootout. So yeah, I feel a little bit of that, but that's okay. It'll keep me young, I guess. It's fine. All right, Neil, you have, I'm getting you off at 1:57 p.m. so you can okay. listen to the exciting beginning of the <laughs> of the WFAN afternoon show. All right, that's, all right. that's uh, always must, you know, always a point. Must listen. listen. All right, thank you very much, Neil. Best of Newsday, who is. Uh, 
He's covering all things Francesa. All right, back in the studio. I'll bring uh, Lou Pellegrino, who's a New York legend here, knowing about that. Poor, poor <laughs> Neil Best. Uh, Boy, his his day just basically turned into like 75 like updated stories on the latest Francesa. He has to write about whatever these guys say at the top. Is this not He's going to – Francesa will probably say something later. My God, is what a pain. Is this not Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien all over again? Like, didn't we go through this once before? We more, did. More I, of a I, national level. Yeah. You, remind me of this. How long was Leno – how long did Leno last after Ooh. Conan – did he last three years? Oh, I don't remember. I don't remember the time frame. I just remember he did beat Letterman in the ratings. Still, I think right? he did. Yeah. yeah although his numbers were down. If I remember sure. Yeah. Right. It wasn't the same. It never is. It's like Ryan Sandberg coming back. Yeah. Ryan Sandberg leaves. He's one of the best second basemen in Major League Baseball. Retires. Takes two years off. Comes back, and he's not the same person. By the way, am I crazy to say that Francesa is a little like Trump, and just in terms of I, his <laughs> paranoia? <laughs> uh, oh, it, it's God. great though. It's it's. I, I mean, I will say, living in New York, it's fun. I'm thank God I don't have to write about what this. I really wanted. It's to fun do to today, it's fun to watch. Though. What I really wanted to do today was have Sour Shoes call into your show as Mike. And oh be my like, God, Richard, um, I'm Sour breaking, Shoes is a genius. His Richard, uh, I'm breaking news and he, he the times where he will call into uh, Chris Russo's show as Mike. Oh, it's great. It's just genius. And it's on great. and actually, if I remember right, one of the, you, you since Sour Shoes is a very famous Howard Stern character, but. One of the great sour sort of like imitations or pranks of all time is when he called Adam Carolla as Artie Lang. You oh, ever sure. hear that? Oh, sure. That guy is, he might be the most brilliant voice mimic he's, I've ever heard. He's a human tape recorder. And see, the lucky thing is in a. Why does he not have his own something? It's, <laughs> it's not many people can control him. That's, oh, that the, that's the thing. And uh, in another, uh, many, many, many years ago, in another life for me, that was, that was my world. And. Living and breathing and working in that Howard Stern world, and, and on the very outskirts, producing you know the right. Scott Farrell show, a sports show at, at night that right. was on. But yeah, Howard's but he channels. but he was part of Howard's channels, right? But Sour Shoes was introduced to me. I was introduced to Sour Shoes, and now I get those phone calls every day. Wow, I get those <laughs> phone calls every day. That it gets to a point where you're like sour you know, enough, buddy. It's like oh, I know, I recognize the number. I I can't answer it right now because he'll keep me on the phone for an hour and a half. Because all you want to do is run through the gamut of all of his impressions. <laughs> right. So it's. Do Fred the Elephant Boy, do Gary, do this one, do that one. So then finally it's it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon and my wife's looking at me going, are you coming to dinner anytime soon? Are we going to sit down? I, he's he is the, he's the best impressionist I've ever heard. He's, I, I would say bar none. He's otherworldly. When I don't comes. know if he could do like famous a, people. But like, it's obscure. No, but see, but that's the thing. Yeah. It's obscure. Like can he do York Obama? Or, can he do Trump? I don't think Trump? so. No, because I, you know what? I don't. Because he doesn't listen to that as it's, much. Right. Yeah. And when you hear him do his Scott Farrell, when he does his Gary Delabate, when he does his Sid Rosenberg, Mike Francesa, everybody it's just one of those really really have to you really have to be a new yorker to understand and appreciate when he can go and do a john sterling call with susan waldman chiming in at the same time and this is all very new york but it's become more national because he's been on howard and he calls dan patrick and he does all these other shows but you know, I wanted to get him to call in today to D Mike and say, you know, uh, Richard, um, I and I can't even do the impression, but uh, you know, I'm breaking news today. I'm coming back, and you know, it would have been, it would have been so much fun to hear his version of it. But then now this gives us more ammunition from Sour Shoes because Frances is coming back. All right, Lou Pellegrino, thank you very much. Uh, thanks, of course, to Vern Lundquist, who is phenomenal. Um, he's always great to talk to. John O'Ran for a quick short. Um, spot on the NFL scheduling and get up and then Neil Best who is in the midst of uh Francesa Dumb. Thank you very much for subscribing to this podcast. You can check it out on many different places from iTunes to Google Play to Stitcher, Feedburner. It is the Sports Media Podcast with Richard 
Deitch. And um, next week, we already have a guest booked, and that is Cheryl Reeve, who is the general manager and coach of the Minnesota Lynx. Um, coaches Maya Moore, Simone Augustus. The reason she's coming on is she's been very, very vocal about the lack of uh, coverage in women's basketball and women's sports, quite frankly, in the media. She's really just an interesting, smart person, and I think we'll just have a really good conversation about that as to the the whys, what her experience has been like. I mean, she basically coaches a dynasty that does not get covered nearly like any other dynasties. And so I'm really looking forward to it. She's a great coach, not to mention that one of the great coaches out there. Just look at her record. It's crazy. So Cheryl Reeve will be a guest, and I think we're going to do a roundtable as well. So for Vern Lundquist, John O'Ran, Neil Best, and Lou Pellegrino, this is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.